Welcome to American Catholic History, brought to you by the support of listeners like you. If you value this content, please become a supporter at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support. I'm Noelle Easter-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again to our supporters. Your support really means a lot to us, and it makes it possible for us to keep making these episodes. We um, have some growing expenses with needing to pay for production now and the time that it takes. So we really couldn't keep doing this without you. Yes, thank you sincerely. And those of you who have considered becoming supporters, please join us. Find our support levels and the perks offered at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support, and then join us via Patreon or Locals. Also on our website, we just put our shop up so you can find some really cute depictions of some American Catholic history awesome people, apart from us. Um, and St. Kateri Tekoitha, St. John Newman, Augustus Sister, Tolton, Sister Blanchina Sagali, one of my favorites, Absolutely. and Julia Greeley. Julia Greeley. Yeah, we hope you really enjoy With them. little red wagon. Also, thank you for the reviews you leave on Apple, and especially the five-star ratings. They let Apple know that this is a great podcast, and... More people should find it. Absolutely. So all that said, on with the show. Today, we're talking about the ways that Catholics have shaped the cuisine of America, including wine, Monterey Jack cheese, pepperoni rolls, McDonald's filet of fish sandwiches, muskrat, and the original cuisines of Louisiana. Of course, what happened in Louisiana may be one of the most American things. Many different cultures brought their own culinary heritage, sometimes their own native ingredients, and used what was native to the land to come up with a cuisine that is both familiar to many, but also entirely unique. Multiple books have been written on the cuisine of Louisiana. It's a huge topic. We're not going to go into it in too much depth, but we'll talk about it in a bit. First, we'll talk about two big ways the Spanish missionaries in California shaped the food of America, wine and cheese. A fine pairing. This episode is going to make me hungry. I just know it. Well, maybe we should have brought a bite to eat and something to sip on. Okay. So, California wine and cheese and Spanish Franciscans. We'll start with the wine. Franciscan missionaries arrived in the Alta California province of New Spain, that is modern-day California, in 1769. St. Junipero Serra established Mission San Diego de Alcala and shortly thereafter planted grapevines. Serra and his companions certainly traveled with wine for celebrating Mass, but once they established a mission, they didn't want to rely on shipments of wine coming from Mexico City. They could grow their own grapes and after a while have their own wine. As the Spanish missions spread up the coast of California, reaching as far north as Monterey and San Francisco, so did the vineyards. The grape varietal they planted is known as the Mission Grape, and it was the standard in California wines until the latter part of the 1800s, when French vines were introduced. Now, the Spanish didn't bring their vines across the bay and plant them in Sonoma, Napa, and the rest of the present-day wine region of North California. That development came after the 1849 gold rush, when all those thirsty miners greatly increased the demand for wines and brandies. But the beginning of the California wine industry goes back to the mission grapes planted by St. Junipero Serra and his Franciscan friars, who needed their own supply for mass. The Franciscans' second innovation that we're all grateful for is Monterey Jack cheese. Yes, the Monterey part comes from Mission San Carlos Borromeo, which Junipero Serra established on the Monterey Peninsula in 1770. This was the second mission established by Serra, and it was his headquarters from 1770 until his death in 1784. When the friars came to Monterey, they brought more than just grapevines, they also brought cows. Cattle were not native to North America. We talked in another episode about 
how the Jesuit Eusebio Kino brought cattle ranching to modern-day Arizona in the late 17th century. Well, less than a century later, the Franciscans brought cattle up the West Coast, and with cattle came cow's milk, perfect for so many cheeses. Yes. One soft white cheese which the friars developed, they called queso blanco de país, or white cheese of the countryside. One reason they made cheese was to preserve the milk. They didn't have refrigeration, so whatever wasn't consumed would go bad if not used in some other way. Cheese keeps longer than raw milk, and it retains the health benefits, so lots of cheese was made. As the community grew and more dairy farmers developed, they taught area farmers how to make this particular kind of cheese. Everything was fine until 1859. That year, an unscrupulous businessman from New York called David Jack came along and connived to take possession of a huge portion of the land around Monterey. The land he acquired included 14 such dairies run by natives. He found the cheese and saw an opportunity to sell it. By his logic, the cheese produced on these farms was now his to sell for his own profit, so he did. He marketed it with his name, calling it Jack's Cheese. Eventually, Monterey was added to give it its current name. But despite the sordid story of its naming, the original cheese is an American original through the Spanish friars who brought dairy farming and wine to California. Okay, moving way to the east, we come to Cincinnati, Ohio. In 1959, McDonald's was just spreading across the country from its home base in California. The first franchise east of Phoenix had opened in Des Plaines, Illinois, just four years earlier in 1955. And in 1959, a Catholic businessman named Lou Groen opened a McDonald's franchise in Cincinnati. Over the next two-plus years, Groen saw that on Fridays, especially Fridays of Lent, his sales would plummet. Now, Groen himself was Catholic, and his franchise was in a very Catholic part of Cincinnati, so he knew why. The Catholic discipline of of abstaining from meat on Fridays. Remember, this was 1959 through 1962, when the American church still required Friday abstinence from meat all year round. Now, of course, while the church still recognizes the penitential nature of all Fridays, the American church has removed the requirement for to abstain on Fridays outside of Lent. We could have an entire episode on the wisdom of this discussion by the U.S. bishops. Maybe we will someday and invite Jimmy Aiken on. But we'll leave that alone and return to the filet of fish. Yes, let's keep this episode to under an hour. (laughs) Yeah. So before Lent in 1962, Groen contacted McDonald's corporate offices and said he wanted to be able to include a fish sandwich on the menu to keep the Catholic customers coming on Fridays. The head of McDonald's at the time, Ray Kroc, the man who really made McDonald's the global juggernaut that it is today, hated the idea. He told Groen that he didn't want his restaurants to smell like fish. Kroc told Groen to go with an idea he'd come up with instead, what he called the hula burger. The hula burger was, and I hesitate to say this in a family podcast because it just sounds wrong and offensive, a thick slice of pineapple breaded and deep fried and put on a bun with a slice of cheese. Ugh. Might as well put pineapple on pizza. It's just an affront to good taste and sense. I like pineapple on pizza. I know. You also like the Red Sox and the Patriots, but I love you anyway. Yes, because I'm marvelous like that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, thank you. Anyhow, Gruen suggested that they have a little competition. They would put both items on the menu one Friday in Lent, and whichever one sold better would remain. 
Croc went for it. The result wasn't close. Groen's filet fish far outsold the hula thing, I can't call it a burger, by a score of 350 to 6. And the filet fish became the first permanent non-hamburger item on the global McDonald's menu in 1963. Much better than a hunk of pineapple. Well, on a bun, yes, probably with American cheese, yuck. But pineapple on pizza with ham? Mmm, delicious. Yeah, I love you. (laughs) Anyhow, our next Catholic culinary delight is one that I grew up with in Northeast Ohio, and I kind of figured everyone else grew up with it too, but I've since learned that it is not, that that is not the case. This is the delicious and oh-so-simple pepperoni roll. Well, I grew up in Massachusetts, and I didn't know about them until I moved to Steubenville. I know. That just astounds me because the pepperoni roll is so simple. It's just a breadstick stuffed with pepperoni and then baked. As it bakes, the pepperoni cooks and the fats render and take those the, the oil and some of the spices go into the bread. It's, oh, it's just, A good pepperoni roll is just tough to beat. Well, that was the point. The pepperoni roll was originally baked by Italian immigrant Giuseppe Argiro in 1927. Argiro came to the U.S from Calabria in Italy to work in the coal mines. Loads of Italians had come to north-central West Virginia to work in the mines, and those miners would often have a stick of pepperoni or salami along with a loaf of bread for lunch. Argiro opened Country Club Bakery in Fairmont, West Virginia, and decided to combine the two. The pepperoni roll at 45 cents per dozen was a sensation. With a pepperoni roll, the miners could just take one substantial loaf with them into the mine and at lunchtime just chow down, getting all the protein, lipids, and carbohydrates they needed to keep going. The pepperoni roll became so popular that it spread throughout the state and, as I said, into border regions around West Virginia. Then, in 2000, the pepperoni roll went national, if you will. The U.S. Army began to include it as an option in MREs, the meals ready to eat that they give to soldiers. In fact, the pepperoni roll proved to be such a great source of essential nutrition in a tiny package that the Army made it a staple of the food rations given to light infantry, airborne troops, and special forces. Well done, West Virginia. Mm -hmm. Well done. (laughs) Argyro's original Country Club Bakery is still in operation in Fairmont, West Virginia, and it still pumps out its original Original simple pepperoni rolls, as well as many varieties with other ingredients packed in like cheese, peppers, those sorts of things. Oh, I'm just getting hungry thinking about it. And as of 2021, the pepperoni roll is recognized as the official state food of West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Moving northwest a little ways, we land in Detroit and we come to a story that has something in common with the filet of fish. Yes, meatless Fridays. But whereas the solution that Lou Groen came up with is delicious and appealing, the solution these early settlers of Michigan came up with is not. Hey, well, I mean, some say it's quite delicious or at least an acquired taste. It's just just not one that I'm planning to acquire. No, neither I. Judging by how it's prepared, anything could be made palatable if it's cooked for that long with garlic, onion, salt, and other spices. But let's not keep our listeners waiting any longer. As we said at the very beginning, this is muskrat. Yes, the marsh-dwelling rodent that is described as a cross between a beaver and a rat. In the 18th and early 19th centuries, the muskrat lived in large numbers along the banks of rivers and creeks throughout southeast Michigan. When fur traders moved beyond the city in the later 18th century, they faced food shortages due to the harsh winter months. Back then, Catholic practice strongly recommended abstaining from meat throughout the entirety of Lent, not just on Fridays. We've gotten so soft. I know. 
Though, well, but the people of Michigan, well, they asked for a dispensation to eat the only consistent and abundant source of nutrition available to them, muskrat. Starvation would not have been preferable, I'll admit, but my goodness, that is a sacrifice of a different sort. The pastor in Detroit at the time was our old friend, Father Gabriel Richard. We told his incredible story a long time ago. He was a remarkable man, and we hope that he will one day be canonized. His cause isn't officially open yet, but the Archdiocese of Detroit is in the beginning phases of applying to open his cause. Which is... Which is wonderful. Yes. Father Richard was sympathetic to the plight of the people, so he petitioned Bishop Carroll for a dispensation, and the dispensation was granted. Henceforth, and to this day, Catholics in that part of Detroit may eat muskrat during days of abstinence. The Captain Sneal song, Muskrat Love. Is... Anyway, <laughs> yeah. And surprisingly, some still do. Even with the advent of modern farming, fishing, refrigeration, and transportation, which mean that the grocery stores are chock full of low-cost, high-protein options like seafood and various vegetables, some people still eat muskrat. Yes, some still do. It's obviously more of a tradition thing nowadays and a necessity, but some parishes in that part of Michigan have muskrat dinners during Lent. And they sell out. The key, apparently, is in the preparation. First, the musk glands have to be removed carefully. Nick one of those buggers and the whole thing is ruined. Then, once it is demusked, making it just a conventional rat? I don't know. The meat has to be soaked in brine for a long time, then rinsed and soaked again a couple more times. Then, traditionally, it is boiled with lots of garlic and onions and perhaps other spices and things like celery for like four hours before finally the meat is fried or roasted with whatever seasoning. In short, you have to completely replace its own native flavor to make it palatable, but still. The thought of eating muskrat is just not appealing. <laughs> okay, well, anyhow, before you insult too many more Michiganders... Yes, I'm sure the Carpenters are big fans. <laughs> yeah, I doubt that. I think you're going to get a nasty gram from Lindsay. <laughs> oh, I do hope so. <laughs> well, let's move on to our final destination in Catholic American cuisine. This last bit, as we suggested at the outset, is large enough that it could have multiple episodes of its own podcast... And it probably does. This is the food of New Orleans and Acadiana, Creole and Cajun. Yes. So Catholics first settled in the area in the mid-1600s. But it was a tough place to live. The climate was like nothing they'd experienced. Their native crops didn't grow in the climate or the soil. Food shipments from France were few and unreliable. Without the aid of some natives who lived in the land, they may all have died. But through careful marketing strategies, they convinced more French settlers and other Europeans, including Germans, to come over and find a new life. The Germans were less willing to stick around down in the bayou, so they moved a little ways upriver where the land was more amenable to farming. Eventually, some French moved to the region from French-held islands in the Caribbean, and they brought their African slaves with them. Each of these groups, including the slaves, brought elements of their native cuisines with them. One of the biggest contributions of the French was roux, that marvelous combination of melted butter and flour which forms the basis of so many amazing dishes. Among other things, Africans brought okra from Africa. Slaves also brought cooking techniques from their homelands, and many African slaves were employed as cooks, so they were instrumental in developing what we know as Creole food. Naturally, the local natives contributed their knowledge of local herbs, root plants, and local wildlife that was good for hunting. Eventually, as New Orleans became the fourth largest city in the U.S. and the second largest port, immigrants came from other parts of the world, including Sicily, the Dalmatian coast of the Balkan Peninsula, and even Asia. 
All of this came together in the kitchens of the growing city of New Orleans. As the city became more prosperous, the taste became more refined. And Creole food was the result. Mm, Delicious. But Creole wasn't the only cuisine developing in Louisiana at the time. Outside of New Orleans, up in Acadiana, Cajun food developed. Yes, and this is an important point. Cajun and Creole are not interchangeable. Where Creole was the New Orleans cuisine that resulted from many decades of refined development, Cajun food was what the people who lived out in the countryside ate. We talked about the origins of the Cajun people before when we talked about Charlene Richard. In the late 18th century, Catholics were driven out of the Acadian region of Canada by the British. Many went to France, but they weren't exactly French, so a whole lot of them moved to an, a largely unsettled region of central South Louisiana. Because of this, the region has long been called Acadiana. Well, when these French Canadians settled in Louisiana, they became known as Cajuns. They didn't have much, and they more or less lived off the land, or the sea for those who lived near the water. But over time, they too developed their own cuisine. It also is largely based in roux. They are French, after all. And it has some spices and ingredients in common with Creole, but it uses fewer vegetables and doesn't have the same international influence. And it is much more simple and rough. Though it is hardly less delicious or worthwhile. Oh, no. Also, like Creole food, Cajun food is an incredibly unique thing that has become known around the world while maintaining its roots among the historically Catholic people of central and southern Louisiana. Man, now I really want to put together that pilgrimage to New Orleans and Acadiana. Yeah, well, we'll have to do some scouting first, but I've got ideas. Ah, sounds good to me. (laughs) One final comment about Creole and Cajun food that a friend of mine asked me to make make very clear neither of them is by definition really spicy many people outside of louisiana automatically think cajun and creole have to be super spicy and burn your tongue but that's simply not the case it can be but it doesn't have to be right i am not a fan of super spicy foods i like a a little bit but i really enjoy authentic creole and cajun cooking yeah and i was absolutely correct this whole episode has made me very hungry anyhow so that's our tour through some of the catholic cuisines and foods in america so the next time you enjoy monterey jack cheese a pepperoni roll a filet of fish authentic creole or cajun food or maybe muskrat Raise your glass of California wine and remember that you're eating an American Catholic original. This has been American Catholic History. If you enjoy American Catholic History, please become a supporter. We've got great perks for supporters like mugs and stickers and books and all kinds of fun stuff. Get information on how to become a supporter and the perks at AmericanCatholicHistory.org slash support. Also on our website, sign up for our newsletter, check out our merch, learn more about Catholic cuisines of America, and see about our upcoming pilgrimages, like we're going to Wisconsin next year, and find other great stories from American Catholic history. We also love the great reviews our listeners leave. Those and the five-star ratings help others find us. You can also email us feedback, questions, tips for episode topics, and other comments at feedback at America. AmericanCatholicHistory.org. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, and follow us on Twitter at ACH1513. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, made possible by listeners like you.